For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Tom Athron. Tom is the CEO of Fortnum & Mason, which he joined in the middle of the pandemic. Before that, he held senior roles at John Lewis and at Waitrose. Tom, welcome to Table Talk. Morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. Tom, as our listeners know, we always start at the same place with this podcast by asking, what are your earliest memories of food? Well, I was brought up at a place called Mersey Island, which is on the Essex marshes. Very special place and actually famous for its oysters. I would say that that wasn't my first uh, memory of food. But what I do remember is it being seafood being a really strong part of you know, my upbringing, certainly when it came to what we were eating. And I guess my sort of earliest memories of food, certainly my fondest early memories of food, would be sitting with my legs dangling over the hard, which was the really the water's edge on Mersey Island, with my hands in a pint of prawns. You could go to the company shed, which actually still exists to this day. It's a family-owned, bring-your-own-alcohol, very simple food outlet where you could buy oysters or you could buy dressed crab, but you could also buy a pint of prawns. And literally, it was a one of those old-fashioned dimpled pint glasses with a handle full of prawns that you would then just um, sit on the side and peel and eat. So I remember that really fondly as being a big part of growing up. And what were mealtimes like for your family? Lots of sitting around the table, lots of laughter, lots of chatting, lots of family involved. Uh, My mother came from Mersey Island originally, so there were lots of cousins, aunts, uncles, always in and out of the house. And food played a really important part of that, actually. So including things like afternoon tea, doorstep pieces of bread with lots of butter and jam, but very much food uh, centred around the home. I think in those days, eating out, it wasn't perhaps quite the thing that it is today. I remember eating a lot at home around that kitchen table, meal after meal. But going out seemed to be something of a, I mean, it really was confined to special occasions, high days and holidays. Whereas I think these days that's all changed. People eat out an awful lot more. But in those days, it was very much a family affair sitting around the kitchen table. And who was doing the cooking in the house when you were growing up? Definitely my mum. My dad seemed to focus more on drinks and my mum was very much at the cooker and cooking just simple things. I mean, we had kippers for breakfast uh, at the weekend. My dad was really keen on that. He had them um, sent down in the post from Yorkshire. He was a Yorkshireman. So loved a kipper for breakfast. But just simple food, lamb chops, potatoes, peas, vegetables, all those sorts of things, nothing particularly fancy. My dad was in the army. So actually we lived all around the world but found our home on Mersey. It's the place that we all came back to. And so it was just simple Sunday lunches. uh, And as I said, sort of things like afternoon tea. I remember kippers really strongly. And in fact, I still enjoy a kipper to this day. And what about school food, Tom? Do you have happy memories of school food? I do, actually. I know it's really popular to say that school food was terrible, but actually my school food was really good. Or at least I certainly remember it being really good. I was sent away to school. Uh, I actually went to an army boarding school down in Dover, a place called the Duke of York's Royal Military School, which still exists to this day. It was for sons of soldiers, but now is for sons of or sons and daughters of people who work in all three services. 
Um, but those days it was very army focused and a lot of people whose parents were posted all around the world found themselves um, at school in Dover. We had about 450 boys there. And I remember the food being really good. Things that stick out in particular, I would say, were the breakfasts. There was a big thing around fried bread and marmalade. In fact, one of the guys in my year at school set up a blog post not so long ago. I'm not sure it's still, I haven't looked actually to see whether it's still there, but he called it the fried bread and marmalade years. That really was something to behold. And uh, it was a, an incredibly popular thing. I remember just sitting at these long mess tables at breakfast, tucking into fried bread and marmalade. And it's not something I've tried recently, but I really do need to sort of revisit that to see whether or not it really was as good as I thought it was. <laughs> and did moving around the world, following your father's sort of different army bases, did that affect what you were eating at home? Was that influencing what was being cooked or was it still quite sort of standard British? Not particularly, no. I'd love to say that I was sort of introduced to... Um, food from <laughs> Belize and Hong Kong in those early years. But I don't remember that at all. I just remember, mm. I remember the diet being really quite staple. And I remember the food on army bases being simple and British rather than necessarily introducing any influences from overseas. I mean, I suppose the one thing I do remember is we spent a lot of time in Germany and there were a lot of sausages on the menu, a lot, um, all the time. Whether they were German sausages or British sausages, I couldn't tell you. But I don't really remember being exposed to food from around the world but living on army patches all over the world that didn't really seem to happen so no I, I would say that the my sort of food interest at that point were were sort of confined to being very British I, I do remember we had a, the most amazing tuck shop at school and the other thing I remember which I think became frankly something of a staple diet for me and I suspect a large part of my calorific intake became um, refresher sweets they were about an inch long and you could get five for 10p they were 2p each and I must have eaten about 20 a day. I mean, these things were absolutely <laughs> delicious. And the truth is that you still can find them in sort of retro sweet shops. There's one in Brighton, not far from where I live, where you can go and you can still find refreshers to this day. And they just evoke all these memories of being at school and fundamentally being sustained on refined sugar. I mean, that's pretty much all I ate, actually, I think, in my teens. And what about university? What was food like? You studied at Newcastle University. What were you eating at that stage in your life? I did. I really loved my time at Newcastle. What a fantastic place to live for a couple of years. I guess two things jump out at me from my time at university. One would be the preponderance of what they call stotties, which I know is a very southern way to describe or to um, pronounce what the Geordies would call stotties, which were basically big, flowery baps big round bats, probably seven or eight inches um, wide, filled with whatever you wanted. So whether that was cheese or egg mayonnaise, it was basically what you had a, um, as a sandwich for lunchtime. I ate a lot of those. I thought they were absolutely delicious. And the other thing I remember about food at university, because of course I lived in halls for the first year, so that was all catered and I just ate what was available. But I do remember moving into my house in the second year and then the third year and living with seven or eight other people. And we used to cook an awful lot, really simple stuff. So beans and burgers and sausages and all that sort of thing. But I do remember sort of developing an ability to cook for 12 people, which then sort of took me into my time in living in flats in London and places after that. But I, I never seemed to be able to cook for anything other than 12 people, even if there were only two or three of us in the house. So I produced mountains of food uh, <laughs> for two people. So it was a skill I developed and then really struggled to get rid of. But I do remember the food up there being fantastic. You could go to, there was a brilliant restaurant where you could go to, and it, actually it was a sort of an Italian restaurant right opposite the house. 
that I lived in, a place called Francesca's, which was a really simple restaurant just opposite. You, um, the I know what you're going to say, Tom. Uh, oh, do you? What am I going to say? I do. You're going to say half pizza, half pizza. I'm going to say 50-50. That's exactly yeah. right. I, don't, I can't <laughs> believe that. I grew up on Francesca's. I spent a lot of time in Francesca's. It was sort of uh, red and white checkered tablecloths and really simple carafes of wine and then 50-50, half pizza, half pasta. It was the best thing ever. I'm sorry, is that half a pizza and you have the other half pasta? How does that work? Yes, on the same <laughs> plate. I used to get half carbonara pasta and half carbonara pizza. So I was I was really not mixing up. I was just, you know, as carby as as physically possible. It was a proper lesson in how to ingest <laughs> carbs. What I loved about it was that you never had to face that choice between do I have pizza, which sometimes I really feel like a pizza, or do I have pasta? And sometimes I really feel like it was just it was just just solved that problem really simply. And when you left university, you initially moved to London. Where were you living in London? I was living in southwest London, so various flats across Battersea, Fulham. Um, uh, Hammersmith and then eventually I bought my first flat up in in West Kent top of the North End Road and there wasn't much money I seem to remember so going out to eat certainly was um, something of a treat so again I remember cooking at home an awful lot and we ended up buying a flat and having our uh, my wife and I had it was a two-bedroom flat and we ended up having two children there we sort of really running out of room but I remember cooking an awful lot at that point partly because going to restaurants was just so expensive and I remember the, uh, there was a lot of cooking going on. And I think that I live in a, a family now, my wife and our children, uh, where we all cook. But what we tend to find is that the, I would say that the misses get more airtime than the hits. Uh, and, <laughs> and mistakes that were made even back then, it's now 30 years ago I was living in London, or 25 years ago living in London with um, when I was first married with my wife. And cooking things like, I remember one night I cooked a, a, there was a cod dish and I made this very special saffron sauce that I really, really tried hard to get right. And it was so disgusting that it is still bought up today, to this very day. <laughs> and I find that that happens a lot, actually. Uh, so that still gets bought up. We went through a period of guess the secret ingredient, which was invariably Marmite, as far as I can remember, or cumin. I remember putting cumin in everything, including scrambled eggs. And we still play that game a lot. And invariably still, it is Marmite. We're quite a big Marmite family. We all love Marmite and Marmite with everything. I noticed Marmite introduced Marmite and peanut butter in one jar the other day. And I was thinking, I've been doing that for 30 years. That's just nothing new in that at all. Um, so Marmite with everything is always good. Marmite spread on a um, slice of cheddar, absolutely delicious. Okay. Marmite in chicken, just delicious. Marmite in a jacket potatoes, also delicious. Marmite That's in jacket potatoes. I mean, basically, Marmite on anything is, frankly, is a good addition. All the real foodies at Fortnum's will be holding their heads in despair. <laughs> uh, they'll be thinking, who is this man? Do this you man sell with Marmite all... at Fortnum's? We don't it, sell Marmite it? at Fortnum's. No, we don't. We don't. But all these horrific guilty pleasures when it comes to things like that, it's not good. <laughs> Tom, can you give listeners an idea about how you ended up going into a career in the world of food and retail? Yes, I started off working in a bank in my early 20s and decided that wasn't really for me, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I went to South Africa to do an MBA, actually, partly because I thought South Africa was a fascinating place at the time and partly because it was obviously just a few years after Nelson Mandela had been released and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was happening and it just felt like a really interesting place to be but it was also super good value I mean I, I managed to do my MBA and live there for, uh, without taking on 
you know, lots and lots of debt, which would then force me into a job that I didn't want afterwards. And so my wife and I went and lived in Cape Town for 18 months or so. And we had the most fantastic time. And that's the moment that I really, uh, because it was such good value, that was the point at which I really began to discover restaurants, actually. We would eat out a lot of breakfast, lunch and dinner because it was just so cheap. And it was wonderful. I remember, in fact, I'd been there for about six months and we were asked by some friends if we wanted to go rafting down the Orange River for a few days. And I remember thinking the most exciting thing about that is that I don't have to eat in a restaurant for five (laughs) days in a row, which seems ridiculous now. But the food in Cape Town really was fantastic and actually still is. And we go back every now and again. And the restaurant scene in Cape Town is as innovative and as creative and as high quality as anywhere on the planet, actually. It's the most extraordinary place for food. But I came back from South Africa and I was trying to work out what I wanted to do. And it was at the time of the dot-com boom at the end of the 1990s, beginning of the 2000s. And I joined a little consulting firm that specialised in retail, which I really enjoyed. And I started to work with retailers who were actually building catalogue and e-commerce businesses. And I did a bit of work with M&S. I did a bit of work with B&Q. I did a bit of work with the John Lewis partnership, who then phoned and said, look, there's this job. Would you like to come and join the partnership? And we'd just had some a uh, couple of children, and it just felt like a really interesting and good time to go and sort of go client-side, effectively, rather than being a consultant forever. And I quite quickly moved from working in the sort of corporate centre of the John Lewis partnership through a couple of routes, but then into Waitrose. And that was really my first exposure to food in a professional sense, even though I was working in the finance department. In fact, I was the, I was the finance director. So running a big team of people across strategy and finance and change and, and what have you. But um, what I was surrounded by for the first time was real foodies, people who took real care in food, and not just the buying and merchandising people, but Everyone in Rachel's really had an incredibly strong affinity with the food that we were selling and not just the food that we were selling, but also a real interest in where it came from. So sourcing and provenance, the way the business worked with suppliers, that whole thing really met. I just I felt at home for the first time, probably in my career, actually. And I met the most fantastic people in the food industry, you know, from Heston uh, to Delia Smith and to all these people that we were working with professionally and it just really sparked an interest that I've never really lost so that's how I got into retail and then more specifically food and what are the challenges of doing a job like that you know where you are combining food love with business well the first challenge is to not eat so much that you end up putting on a stone for every year that you work somewhere (laughs) and that requires I guess a degree of self-discipline and um, and quite a lot of exercise if I'm completely honest I have a great friend who is a food critic who who spends about five hours a week on his Peloton, and I think that's probably the only way he can do it. So that's the first challenge. But I think for a business like Waitrose, and specifically actually for a business like Fortnum's, actually we find, particularly operating at that end of the market, so the premium end of the market, I mean, Fortnum's is really being positioned around extraordinary food and drink. That's very much its heritage. It's where it comes from. And it's very much what we want to sort of reinforce So really thinking about um, where that food comes from and driving sort of innovation and creativity through it. And so you really are presenting to the customer extraordinary food and drink. Part of the challenge for Fortnum's and indeed for anyone actually who sells food, but particularly Fortnum's would be 
if you really are about extraordinary food and drink, it's very easy to put a Fortnum's label on anything and sell it. And I suspect you will end up being able to sell it for a premium. But there's a tyranny in that, you know, there's a real temptation to do that and to sort of drive the commercial performance of the business. But I think customers these days are not only do they have incredibly high standards when it comes to food and lots of knowledge, but they will sniff out when something isn't worth the price that they're paying for it very quickly and they will let you know. And that's true for the biscuits that we sell. It's true for the jam that we make, but it's also true of the food that we sell in our supermarkets. And so we have to work really hard to make sure that the food that we have for sale in our shops and for sale in our restaurants really justifies the label. And so there are some things that we have to work on incredibly hard to make sure that we're really proud of them. So whether that's the contents of real strawberries in our jam or whether or not it's working with a London whiskey distiller to make the most extraordinary London whiskey by putting it in a Oloroso sherry barrel that we might have bought three or four years ago. And we'll work with that London whiskey producer, actually, in this case, it was Bimba, to mature that whiskey in a Fortnum's barrel. And then what you do is you launch a Bimba and Fortnum's collaboration whiskey. It's those sorts of things that really make all the difference. And I think that You know, it's just so important that if we are going to sell biscuits, that they do need to be the best biscuits in the world. And I can tell you, if you've never tried a Toffolossus biscuit, you really should try it because they are absolutely superb. And I think we apply that thinking to everything. So that's the biggest challenge is to make sure that the food that we sell, whether it's in our restaurants or our shops, really justifies the Fortnum's brand. And Tom, through your work, you must obviously meet lots of producers and artisans in the world of food. Is there anyone who particularly stands out who you can talk about whose food can be found in Fortnum's? So a lot of the food that we sell in Fortnum's is Fortnum's own label. So rather than third party brands, although we do have some third party brands, there are a couple of businesses that that do stand out for me. Our chocolates are made by a family firm down in Hove who have been selling chocolates for decades and decades and decades. I wouldn't say hundreds of years, but a long time, probably at least half a century. And indeed, they've been supplying us for pretty much all of that time. In fact, in the old days, their chocolates were actually made on site in Piccadilly. And so we love working with them. There's a family business where we get a lot of our biscuits from, based up in Lancashire, who produce the most delicious biscuits. So we really enjoy working with them. And then there are other businesses as well, really businesses that for me define modern luxury, that maybe sit at a sort of concentric circle just outside food. So some of our tableware manufacturers or some of our china suppliers, there's a business called Feldspar based down in Cornwall who make the most beautiful Cornish tableware in sort of dimpled moulds that are all handmade. The clay comes from pits in Cornwall and it's all handmade down there and then hand-painted and beautifully thin. And if you held them up to the light, you could sort of, they're almost translucent. So beautiful suppliers, not just in food, but in non-food too. But I would say that there are a large number of things that we sell in Fortnum's. If I think about pork pies, pastel donata, uh, scotch eggs, some of our chocolates, um, they're all made by Fortnum's own chefs. We have 100 chefs who work in Fortnum's who are every day manufacturing food for um, um, manufacturing, you know, creating in a kitchen food for people to eat for sale, not just in our restaurants, but also in our shops. And the love and the care and the creativity and the passion that goes into making those things is just mind blowing. And in fact, what we've decided to do is on our third floor, where we used to have menswear, which just doesn't feel like 
a category that Fortnum should be playing in. We closed menswear and in fact we're dedicating that floor now to a studio kitchen which is going to give the opportunity for many of those chefs to come out from behind the walls, behind the curtain, behind, you know, in our sort of commercial kitchens and we're going to put them in front of customers and so customers are going to be able to come in and see those cakes being made, see the Battenberg being made. Uh, see some of those chocolates and the uh, the chocolate being tempered because there's real theatre around that which I think customers will really enjoy seeing we'll use the space for lots of other things too including cookery schools master classes how to make the perfect beef wellington all of those sorts of things but I'm very excited about that and you know it's really important to me that we have a real authenticity and a real sense of mastery around food at Fortnum's and I think this is going to be a really great way to showcase that so that opens at the end of March and we're going to be um uh, doing a big launch. So um, you must come along. And do you have a favourite Fortnum's product? I have lots of favourite Fortnum's products. I mean, <laughs> I think if you were to really press me, I would probably say, I mean, I really like the Pastel Donata, which are those gorgeous sort of caramelised Portuguese custard tarts. Roger Pisey, who's our executive chef, pastry chef, makes the most extraordinary lemon tart. He used to make it in Marco Pierre White's kitchen. Marco Pierre White was famous for his lemon tart. But I can tell you that it wasn't Marco's, it was Roger's. So that is absolutely delicious. I'm a sucker for a pork pie. Our marmalades are truly delicious. There is a, um, again, sort of probably giving away a few guilty secrets. I'm sort of obsessed with crisps. I eat far too many crisps and nuts. I eat cheap crisps and expensive nuts. We do some delicious truffle nuts, which are really good. And they've got, you know, there's a healthy serving of macadamias in there, but also pistachios and cashews and normal peanuts there that is a delicious jar of nuts so i could go on i mean there are so many things that i love eating at fortnum's i have to be so careful about not eating um, about not eating too much <laughs> and as well as the challenges of not eating all the delicious food at fortnum since you've joined tom there's been lots of other challenges most notably the pandemic and now obviously the cost of living and the rise in inflation how have you dealt with those challenges at fortnum's yeah, it hasn't been straightforward. I did join Fortnum's right at the beginning of 2021, which was the point at which we went into a very long lockdown. I think it was five months nearly before everything had opened up again, possibly even longer. And that presented its own challenges. I'll never forget my first morning I turned up and there weren't enough people to open the shop because everyone was either ill or self-isolating. There was a risk that actually we might have to um, shut the shop for a bit. We were able to keep open and we ran it on a skeleton staff. But that was quite a sort of a, an interesting introduction to the world of Fortnum and Mason. But I'm really glad we did stay open. And actually what we did was focus our efforts on building our online business, which pre-pandemic was probably somewhere between, I don't know, about 10% of sales, something like that. For the last year, full year, that's now running at 40%. So we've seen a real change in the nature of our business. And a lot of that business has gone online. So we've grown overall and our online business is now a really significant proportion of what we do. And of course, that introduces challenges in the way that you get fresh food to people and how you pack it and, and, and ship it through the courier network. And so it arrives in tip-top condition. And I think we've made really good progress on that, actually. So that was a real challenge. And then, of course, since then, you're right, we've had the war in Ukraine, which has driven up commodity prices, which has then driven up the price of food more broadly. And what I would say on that is that our suppliers have passed through some of the cost increases that they've borne into us. 
And to a certain extent, we've tried to absorb them and find other ways to be more efficient. But of course, inevitably, we've had to pass on um, some of those costs um, to our customers in, in much the same way that everyone else has. And, you know, it's interesting, the temptation often, and particularly coming from a supermarket background, and there are a few people who work at Fortnum's who come from a food background in supermarkets, the temptation, I think, can be to try and sort of value engineer your product. And it's a bit like the Toblerone thing. You know, when you saw that image of the Toblerone, which was in exactly the same packaging, but there were there was only half the number of spikes on the Toblerone triangle. As the manufacturers try and maintain a price point, but reduce the, the amount of food that fundamentally you get. I have to say that we will never do that. In fact, if anything, whilst the rest of the world does that and sort of zigs, we will zag. So we will go in the opposite direction and look for the opportunity to put even more strawberries in our jam, to put even more butter in our shortbread and our croissants and our biscuits and never to skimp. And I think that by doing that, I think not only does it reinforce the credentials of Fortnum's as being truly the home of extraordinary food and drink, rather than just a sort of an experiential brand or or somewhere where you can come and visit. I mean, I really do want, as I said earlier, the food to justify the label rather than the other way around. So they're the sorts of challenges we're facing right now. And it does mean that we've had to put prices up a little. But what I have seen is that customers, when times get tough, they tend to just think very clearly about where they spend their money or where they want to spend their money and where they don't want to spend their money. And Fortnum's, I think, really lends itself to sort of moments and occasions. So if you want to have a really special dinner party or celebrate a birthday, what I'm finding it actually is that customers will spend that little bit extra on a really super cut of beef or a really fantastic beef Wellington rather than try and scrimp and save um, for those special moments. And I think Fortnum's really lends itself to that. And I think that we... I think we do a pretty decent job of that, actually, on the whole. And Tom, what is comfort food for you? Uh, so I would describe comfort food as guilty pleasures, if I'm honest. And again, you know, being surrounded by foodies at work, to say that I prefer instant coffee to real coffee is something that sends shivers down the spines of my friends at work. I love a bacon sandwich, but I'm very particular about what that bacon sandwich is. It has to be fresh bread, not toasted. The bacon has to be grilled and so it's crispy. And so you've got the sort of soft bread and then you've got that crispy bacon. And then, and this is a trick that I learned from my wife, is that the bread has to be buttered, but you also put marmalade in it. And that is absolutely delicious. Not marmite, but marmalade. And it works really well. It's um, it's delicious. So I love a, a bacon sandwich with some marmalade. I've talked about crisps and nuts, but if you were to ask me, what my best meal ever would be. It would definitely involve crisps and nuts at the beginning. And I'm sort of obsessed with ice cream too, if I'm honest. I really love ice cream and it doesn't even have to be good quality ice cream. I will eat any ice cream. I prefer it to be sort of thick and creamy and not full of air, definitely. And I'm very happy with it just being vanilla and add a stretch vanilla with a swirl of salted caramel. But just love ice cream. I once ate a whole Vionetta. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that <laughs> and Tom I understand that you're something also of an enthusiast when it comes to your vegetable patch um, can you tell us about what you like to grow and what you enjoy cooking with from your vegetable patch yes love my vegetable patch very proud of it it was very much my sort of lockdown project as I suspect it was for many people really enjoy growing onions actually red and white and then stringing them up and eating them all year. That gives me lots of pleasure. I grow potatoes every year, but we never eat them all. I always grow far too many, basically. And actually, that's a bit of a theme. If I'm honest, 
what I'm not very good at is planting things that will give me food over an extended period of time. I make that classic mistake of planting everything and then it all coming to fruition just at the point at which you go away on holiday in the summer. And so you completely lose control of it. So courgettes, I learned very quickly that you don't need six courgette plants, you just need one. And it gives you courgettes all summer if you keep picking them. Uh, this year I grew some artichokes, which were fantastic. Really enjoyed eating those globe artichokes rather than Jerusalem. They were delicious. And I have a one whole bed. I've got I've got eight raised beds and one whole bed dedicated to rhubarb, which I'm a big fan of. I don't force it. I let it grow naturally. And I've got a number of different realities. So I've got champagne. I've got one called Jubilee. I've got one called Victoria and they all grow at different rates. And so that I've been quite clever with rhubarb, actually. That does give me a supply of rhubarb pretty much from the end of March all the way through until the summer. So they're the things that really jump out at me. Leeks are quite good because you can leave them in the ground and eat them uh, all the way into the autumn, almost up until Christmas. When I try and grow cabbages and broccoli, they always seem to get eaten. But I'm not quite sure what is eating them, but it's not me. And we've obviously just touched on this, but we are going to push you to, to tell us your ideal meal, your, your ultimate final death row, desert island meal, whatever you want to call it. You're starting with crisps and nuts. You're probably ending with ice cream, but take us through it. So definitely starting with crisps and nuts. I mean, to be honest, I think I would prefer a series of small plates rather than something big. So I'm not, uh, it's not steak and chips and and something like that. It's more crisps and nuts that then gradually drifts into some arancini or some chorizo or and I'm conscious I'm sort of moving from Italy to Spain really quite quickly there and I think I would start all of those things so that that's sort of a, like a list of small plates but with a really cold glass of um, manzanilla sherry so the classic sort of Seville drink when you go out and eat tapas and Seville you'll always drink it with cold manzanilla and I really love that then, quite frankly, I would be very happy just to skip to pudding, actually. And I think I'd probably need three puddings. I think I'd go for a summer pudding, a pear tart tatin and an apple crumble, all with ice cream and cream. But I think I'd just miss the middle bit. Oh, and pudding, I think I would wash down with Madeira, which is also quite sweet. So a Vidello or something like that. So I'd basically crisps and nuts and starters, miss the middle bit and then just go straight to pudding. Sounds delicious. Well, Tom, thank you very much for joining us on Table Talk. Thank you both. It's been uh, great to be here.